But we've been looking at kind of a mini-series within a series. As you know, have known over the past several years, I am not your traditional pastor. Uh, and a lot of times I go against conventional wisdom, and this is one time of those. Um, a lot of times we went through the entire book of Luke and looked through the Gospel of Luke, and it took us about a year, year and a half to do that. Uh, most conventional books that you read about uh, sermon preparation, they tell you do not do sermons longer than maybe, or sermon series longer than maybe, you know, one month or a month or two months at the most. Not a year and a half, but that's okay. The other thing they tell you is never to do a mini-series within an actual series, and, uh, but that's okay because we find ourselves in this uh, situation. This is a bigger series called Salvation of Assurance Series. But we're looking at Jesus' conversation that he's had with his disciples, uh, this kind of this upper room discourse as called, where we're asking this question as he's sharing his, the time with his disciples, he's telling them, preparing them about him going away. In fact, if you go to, if you go to Israel today, you can actually visit the upper room. This is what the outside of the building looks like. Again, we all have the Da Vinci, uh, mind, da Vinci p- painting where all the disciples are gathered on one side and they get their photo taken. That's not how it happened because if you go into that building, this is historically what is considered this upper room where Jesus had his last supper. And that's where it starts in John chapter 13 is as Jesus is gathering with his disciples there. He understands and John tells us this. He knows that it is his final hour, that this is the time that he has been, that the the Father has sent him. And so he gathers his disciples and he is preparing them. He is preparing them for what's going to happen. And what's going to happen in a matter of hours? He's going to be arrested. He will have an illegal trial. He will then be sent to to Pilate and have this this trial. And then by 9 o'clock the next morning, he will be crucified. And then by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he will die. They will quickly do a, a burial because they have to make sure all the preparations, all the burials are, are done by the, the time the first star shows out on, on Friday evening because that's the start of the Sabbath day in the Jewish custom. And so as they quickly, they put him in, in Joseph's tomb and they seal his body. And Jesus knows this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen in, in within 24 hours. This is all the time that he has left. And he wants to make sure that his disciples are prepared for that. And so they start off in this upper room. And Jesus begins by saying some things that I'm leaving you. And you cannot come with me at this time. And of course, the disciples are wrestling with that, and they're thinking, Jesus, we've been with you for the past, for the past two and a half, three years. We've gone everywhere with you. Where and where do you go? And of course, Jesus says, you know that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, because I'm going back to my Father. And then Jesus also goes on and says, you know, you, you want to see God the Father, then look at me, because the Father and I were one. I haven't been doing these things. I've been acting this way on my own accord. But I've been walking in obedience to what the, my Father, I mean, referring to God the Father, how God the Father wants me to live and do. And then he goes on and says, I will send another Helper, this Holy Spirit. 
And the Helper is going to start off and understand that, number one, that He is going to be with you forever. He's never going to be taken away from you. He's going to be with you. He's going to remain with you as my followers forever. Number two, He's going to be in you. He's going to and understand, again, that, that location that He is in us, but also the understanding that He is influencing us. He is in control of our lives. And that's that understanding of that little word, in. That the Holy Spirit is the one that every single person that puts their faith and trust in Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the Holy Spirit influences us, the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. And that's why Jesus also says that He will teach you. He's going to be that instructor. He's going to be that guide that as you navigate throughout your life, that He is going to be the one that is going to teach you what it means to live a life that is pleasing and that is holy and, uh, and, and go towards God. And then also, this Holy Spirit is going to remind you, referring specifically to the first century disciples, He's going to remind you of all my words that I've taught with you. With our time nowadays, He reminds us of God's Word as we plant God's Word in our hearts and our lives. That the Holy Spirit takes those words and begins to show, oh yeah, that's how this applies in this situation. Oh yeah, that's how this applies in that situation. Jesus says, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I am go as I return to my Father, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to be this helper that's going to be with you. And then, of course, the famous and most important thing is this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, remain or abide. Continue in me. And again, that's one of the most important verses as we looked at the, the vine and the branches last week. That one of the most important verses that Jesus is saying there is that if you want to bear fruit, if you want to live, and the fruit just simply means if you want to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God, if you want to live a life that is, that is, uh, that everything you say and do and how you act is, is pleasing to God, then you have to continue to remain. Stand firm in Me. Follow Me. Don't go off to the right. Don't go off to the left. But follow. Be My disciple. Follow after Me. And so Jesus has this conversation. Starts off there in the upper room. This is kind of a, a map that kind of shows you the journey that they would take from the upper room down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus starts this conversation in, in, in John chapter 13 and 14 there in the upper room. And at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, okay, let's go. And so as He then are heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane, kind of following that route, He then starts talking about, and we get to John chapter 15, the vine and the branches we looked at last time. But then after Jesus talks about the vine and branches, He begins to talk about this New commandment. In fact, if you are following along there in, in your in your Bibles, you have your Bibles open. Uh, verse uh, let me, uh, verse eleven. Let me say, I have told you these things so that your joy may be in you. Sorry, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Verse twelve. My command is this, and again, that's kind of how the English translations will say that this is Jesus's command, and then what follows: love each other as I have loved you. But that's not really what Jesus is commanding here because the word, the rest of that isn't really a command. 
And so you have to kind of actually scratch your head. And then if you go back to the more literal, this is what it says. This is, this is my command in order that you love each other, referring to a previous command that he had already given them. So you have to ask yourself this question, okay, where is Jesus commanding them? How is Jesus commanding them? In order to find that, we have to go all the way back to John chapter 13, verses 13 and 14 that we'll see here in a few moments. And this is Jesus' new command. is not to love each other, but to do this. Jesus' new command is to be a servant towards one another. To be a servant. Because what happens back in John chapter 13? Well, Jesus is there in the upper room. And as He is there in the upper room, the disciples are there, and all the preparations are made. Jesus then gets up from the table. He takes off His outer garment. He puts a towel around His, his waist. He then takes a, a bowl or a basin full of water. And then He begins to wash His disciples' feet. And then, of course, He has those conversations with with Peter, and they're like, no, Lord, there's no way you're washing my feet. And then, and then Jesus says, no, listen, I need to do this. And then after Jesus washes all His disciples' feet, including who else is there, Judas Iscariot, Jesus washes the guy who's going to be betray Him. He says, I've given you this example. In fact, listen to what it says in John chapter 13. When He had finished washing their feet, He put on His clothes and returned to His place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should, and there's the command, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now some people have taken that literally, if you are part of the Grace Brethren denomination, part of communion, their services, is that they actually have feet wa- foot washing. When I was in Philadelphia, when I was uh, serving there for the summer and doing an internship, I served with part of the Grace Brethren denomination. And, and I never got to experience that com- time of communion. But hearing people and talking to the pastor, it's an interesting and fascinating experience. And what happens is this. All the women get on one side of the church building on the men get on the other side and they literally will take off their shoes and their socks and they wash each other's feet and then after they do that with to each other it's not the pastor doing this or the elders they're doing that to each other they then will participate in taking the bread and the cup now it's jesus commanding us to literally do this no it's the command is to be that servant because that's what that That's what Jesus was doing. He was humbling Himself. That's the point of these verses. He's saying, listen, you think you call Me Teacher, you call Me Master, you call Me Lord, and I'm rightly so, but look at the example that I've given you. I've humbled Myself to the point of this lowly servant, Jewish household. When you walked into a household because you wore sandals and you had dust on your feet, and you got into the house, the lowliest of the lowly servant, though usually the servant that got in trouble that week, were in charge of bending down and washing the people's feet. Jesus says, that's the example I've given to you. The new command is I want you to be a servant towards one another. And if you jump back to verse 12 there, where it says, this is my command, referring to that servant, in order that... You love each other as I have loved you. That's the result. That's what's going to happen. 
If we walk in obedience to understanding God's command, this new commandment to be a servant towards each other, the result of our, of our obedience to doing that is this, that we will then love one another just as God, or just as Jesus has loved us. That's going to be the result of following in obedience to Jesus' new command. And again, when you look at these a few more verses here. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. Again, we, we look at this and we're thinking, okay, God wants us to love. And again, that, that, the way it's worded in our English translations make us think that. But again, that's not the command. The command is be a servant. And the result of being a servant to one another is that we will love one another because this is what it literally says in these verses. I give to you a new command. That new command be a servant. So that result, you may love one another just as I have loved you. So that result again, you might all love one another. And then verse 35. By this. Well, by what? By your love towards one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciple. And when you think of this picture and you think of what Jesus has done, and you think about the guys, the, the people that He chose to be His twelve disciples. And you think about who they were. I mean, you had Simon, very outspoken. Sometimes his mouth got ahead of his brain. He had what we call the foot and mouth disease type of deal. Where you, after you say something, you're like, oh yeah, put my foot in my mouth because I probably shouldn't have said that. You had James and John who were called the, the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder because they wanted to, to, to the, call fire from heaven to destroy uh, an entire city or village because they would not welcome Jesus. You had other people like, like Simon the Zealot who was a terrorist because zealots in their day were all about overthrowing the Roman Empire. You had Levi who was a tax collector who no one liked. And everybody hated. You had all these, this, this bunch of misfits that, that they, were, they were ready to fight for Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you are to be a servant. You are to love. You are to serve one another, showing that you love each other. You see, Jesus' new commandment is to be that servant. And as you serve the result will be then you will show the world that you truly love one another just as Jesus has loved us. That's why Jesus says, I haven't come to be served, but to serve. You think even in the final moments of His life, as Jesus is there, as Jesus goes to the cross, He could have called angels. He could have been rescued. He could have done all that. But He went willingly to that cross to be that servant. Which is what Isaiah 53 talks about. That suffering servant. Not the suffering king. That suffering servant. And Jesus says, I have given you an example. Now follow it to each other. Other thing that Jesus says here, and it's a, it's a, a verse that so many times is pulled out of context and, and we hear it so often. Even when I was at the Chamber of Commerce a prayer breakfast on, on Friday. This verse was quoted where Jesus goes on and says there in John chapter 13, greater love has no one than this, 
than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And normally when we hear that verse, so many times it's in reference to the military of someone that's dying and saying, oh, they must have really loved our country because they went over there and they they sacrificed their their lives for our country. And, and, And the interesting thing why, again, we take that verse out of context so many times to apply to our firefighters and apply it for our military and apply it to people like that. Because in our skewed understanding, you think, well, they sacrificed their life. They gave up the ultimate love for the country. Do you realize, uh, and talking to some Vietnam veterans, do you realize not everybody serving in our military loves our country? Do you realize, especially Vietnam vets, they were just told to go. They didn't want to go, a lot of them. That's not what this verse means, though. To lay down one's life does not mean to die. Because when you look at this context of what Jesus is referring to about this new commandment of the being the servant, and, the, and that's how you're going to show each other you're going to love each other, to lay down one's life means to serve one another. To humble yourself. To lay down your life to the point of humility. That's what that verse means. To lay down does not mean to die, but to serve one another. And again, Philippians chapter 2, this mindset of Christ that Paul talks about, and, and, and again, I, I've, I've shared that many times before, and if you want to read the whole thing, this is the understanding of this humility, that we are to have this humility towards each other. We are to be in service of one another, not think, oh, I'm better than you. I mean, that's pride. We're supposed to count each other better than ourselves. As Jesus says here, that command to be a servant. Jesus goes on in verse 16 and says this, You do not choose Me, but I have chosen you and appointed you so that you might go and bear much fruit. That fruit's going to last. Again, this is a whole big conversation, which is why we're dealing with the whole conversation and not just picking out a few verses here and there. But this is a whole, Jesus just talked about this vine and the branches and bearing much fruit and how some, that the Father is that gardener, that His number one job, God the Father's number one job is to make us more like Christ, which is why He comes and prunes us so that we can bear much fruit, so we become even more like Christ. And that's what, John, that's what Jesus is saying here, is that we are going to bear fruit, and the fruit that's going to last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, and again, this is the second time that we've seen this, and is and again, the understanding is not again of saying, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray and, and, and say in Jesus' name, I, I ask this, and, and that's it. God has to give it to me because He promised it. And again, that is a misunderstanding of all these verses. The names of people equal their character. So if you ask something according to Jesus' character, then He will do it because that's what His desire is. And Jesus is sending, and He really is sending them, the disciples away from Him so that they could produce much fruit. And again, having that understanding that the whole goal of this whole entire being a life of follower of Jesus is not so we can get eternal life. That's so many times what happens. And so many times we've cheapened that. And you hear that. Just believe in Jesus and you have eternal life. Yes, eternal life is great. But, but we, are, we, we, we don't fully comprehend the Gospel of Jesus that we just leave it at that. Because it's all about the next step. That Jesus changes our lives. He transforms our lives so that we can be like Christ. So that we can produce much fruit. But there's going to be a cost, Jesus says. 
No, we are going to be a friend of Jesus. And who are the friends of Jesus? Jesus tells us this. The ones who walk in obedience to Him. If we are going to be a friend of Jesus, and we are going to keep His commands, then He tells them, then be prepared for something. Be prepared. And that's where Jesus goes on in the next part of this conversation. Jesus says, I've given you this new command is to serve one another. And if you serve one another, then you're, the result is that you will love each other as I have loved you. But know and understand this, if you are going to walk in obedience to me, if you are going to be my friends, if you are going to be my disciples, if you are going to be my followers, understand this, that there is going to be a cost. It's not a bunch of bad, follow Jesus and your life is going to be great. There's going to be a cost. And that cost, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Because verse 19, if you are from the world, then it, referring to the world, considers would love its own. But because you are not from the world, but I have chosen you out of this world, then this is why the world hates you. There's a couple of things there. Number one, Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that they are treating you just as they treated me. If the world hates you, understand that they're just treating you the same way they treated me because they hated me. We also have to understand, number one, is that followers of Jesus, as Jesus says here, we are not part of this world. And you can kind of see that in quotation marks because you're thinking, what are you talking about, Isaac? You, like, we are part of this world. I mean, we, we're living, we're physically here on this world. And yes, we are physically on this planet and we are part of this world. But not, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, you're, you as believers, as my followers, understand this. You do not belong to this world. You are not part of this world referring to the philosophy, the thinking, the actions of this world. You're different. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are different than unbelievers. How we think, what we do, how we live. We're supposed to be different. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you are my followers... Understand this, that you do not belong to this world. Which is why the world hates you or despises you. In fact, that hatred that the world, the unbelievers give to believers, that's a sign that believers are not part of this world. Now we tell our kids all the time, the word hate is a strong word, but we use it so many times. I hate instant macaroni and cheese and hot pockets if you love those i apologize because i personally hate them and here's the story behind why so i had to do a a pastoral internship and as i said earlier i spent three months there in philadelphia in the franklin neighborhood of philadelphia the the second worst neighborhood in philadelphia with the grace brethren church and as I was there serving, I was actually living in the, the kind of their apartment area of, of the church building that they had. And it was up to me to make all my foods. And so I took the only thing that I had as a college student, my microwave. And I lived off of microwave food for the entire summer. 
If you've ever done that, it's, it's exciting. And so every, I would go to the, I would go to the store and I would load up Hot Pockets and instant macaroni and cheese, and that was pretty much what my dinners were for that entire summer. Well, it turned out one time that I did not mix up my instant macaroni and cheese very well one time. And let's just say by the end of the summer, I hated it. I despised it. The one point, the last time I ate it was about the beginning of August. This traumatized me to the point where I know exactly the beginning of August. I mixed it up. I took a bite. And let's just say I, I almost puked off of it. And ever since then, I... I cannot stand the smell or taste of instant macaroni and cheese. Hot Pockets the same way. I tried every single flavor of Hot Pockets they have out there. Uh, pepperoni and pizza uh, and, and uh, the Philly uh, cheesesteak kind and, and, and breakfast kind. I, I mean, I was having Hot Pockets sometimes twice a day for breakfast and for dinner uh, because uh, and so forth. Same thing at the end of that summer Recently, our kids begged for Hot Pockets one time, and I said, that's fine if you guys want them, but I won't, I'm not going to eat them. Now, I did try one just to see if I still had that hatred or detestability of, of that, and it, it, let's just say the newer Hot Pockets, I was like, oh, these aren't as bad as I remembered, but I still don't like them. The way I hate that food is this understanding of this word hate. And Jesus says the world, the unbelievers, are going to hate, despise you. They're going to want nothing to do with you. And that's a sign, actually, that we are actually followers of Jesus Christ. To the point where if we're not being persecuted, if we're not being hated by unbelievers, we may have to ask ourselves and stop and ask ourselves this question, am I living like Jesus or am I living like this world? Is there a difference? Because according to Jesus here, it says we are not of this world. We are to be different. We use that term all the time of the term persecution. And this is a definition of persecution to harass somebody, especially because of that person's belief. And again, this can be, when we think of persecution, usually we think of maybe physical persecution, like people like in Iran, or people like in China, or people uh, in these other countries where they're being harassed and they're being threatened and their lives are being threatened. But this is the broad definition of persecution. So even if someone makes fun of you, you're being persecuted because they're harassing you. And again, it's especially of the, a person's belief. So if someone is making fun of you because of being a follower of Jesus, if somebody is making fun of you because you choose to do certain things and not do certain things, if somebody is making fun of you because you choose not to, 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 to do this or that or not go where, wherever, then that's the t- persecution. And Jesus says this, If you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be my friends, if you are going to walk in obedience to to me, get ready, because the world, unbelievers, are going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to harass you because you are my followers. They're going to think that you have lost your mind. 
because that's what the Romans did. It started out with the believers in the in the Roman Empire that they it was more just man these these Christians these these people that are following the way or Jesus that they are they've lost their minds because they're worshiping this invisible God where in their mind they had these idols that they would go and worship and then they felt threatened because so many people were turning to follow Jesus. And again, in that first century culture, especially when you got to Nero, especially when you get to the other Roman Empire, Roman emperors, they wanted people to worship them. And if you didn't worship the emperor, then you were not a good citizen of the Roman Empire. And so they got felt threatened. And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, then they would persecute you. They would throw you in prison. Because worshiping Caesar was equal to patriotism. The interesting thing that thing happened was the more they persecuted the church, and the same thing is true in our lives today, in our world today. The more people persecute believers, the more governments persecute believers, the more the church grows. To the point where Ignatius, who was a church father, will say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, you've got to be prepared because the world, unbelievers, they will hate you. But don't freak out over that because they hated me. You're just being treated the same way as they have treated me. John 15, verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. You see, non-believers will hate and they will persecute believers because they do not know Jesus or His Father. The reason why there's persecution because Jesus says they're referring to non-believers. They do not know the One who sent me. Again, if we are going to be a friend of Jesus, if we are going to follow Jesus and keep His commands, then we need to be prepared for unbelievers to hate us and to persecute us. If we are going to follow Jesus the way He describes, this is what it means to be my follower, and if we are going to walk in obedience to the point where the Father comes to us and He's going to prune us and He's going to, and we're going to produce more fruit in our lives. And in other words, we're going to be more like Christ every single time the Father comes and deals with this sin and that sin and, and cuts these things out of our lives so we can become more like Christ, so that we can produce more fruit in us. If we're going to become more like Christ, well, guess what? The world, unbelievers, are going to hate us and persecute us even more. And according to Jesus... This will be normal. But again, in America, we have this all flipped upside down. How many times do you feel like, you know, speaking out and then someone kind of comes against you, I mean, I speak, speaking out for Jesus Christ, but comes against you and makes fun of you and you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe, maybe no, you know, I, just, I don't want to have to deal with this, this pain and suffering. So, so maybe, maybe I'll just be quiet and be this, this silent believer that no one's going to know. And according to Jesus' own words here, that's not, that's not possible. Because if you choose to follow Jesus, if you choose to walk in obedience to Him, because that's what it means to be a follower of Him, again, it has, yes, we have eternal life, but it's so much more to be a follower of Jesus means to be acting like Jesus and living like Jesus. If we choose to do that, well, guess what? Jesus says, you're going to be persecuted. 
the world's going to hate you. They're going to look like you've lost your brain, that you have two heads. That's going to be normal. Because look at what, how they treated me. Look at how they treated me. And when you look at the religious leaders, how did they treat Jesus? They arrested him. They made up some false charges. They put him on the cross. Their hatred towards Jesus was that much. Then you get to the, the, the book of Acts and you see how they treated the believers there. These were the same guys. It wasn't like years later. It was just a matter of days. A matter of a month and a half later, all of a sudden you have Pentecost coming. And then you have John and Peter going to the temple and you have them being thrown in prison and they're being threatened and being like, listen, stop telling people about Jesus. We don't want you to hear about Jesus. If you keep telling people about Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be thrown in prison and you're going to, you see how we dealt with Jesus? Yeah, by the way, we're going to do the same thing to you. And so then what happens is this. They get back into the, they, 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 they get released, they go back to the early, they go back to the church, they're in that upper room, they gather again, and they're not praying, oh Lord Jesus, you hear their threats, would you stop their threats, would you, would you allow them to be kind to us? We, we don't want this to happen, no, instead they said, give us more boldness. Give us more boldness to stand firm for Jesus. Give us more boldness to proclaim Your Word. In spite of what they're going to do to us, let us stand firm for You. And these 12 guys, Judas dies, they replace him with Matthias. Paul becomes an apostle. Barnabas becomes an apostle. These, these 12 guys, 13, 14, depending on how you add them all up, these 12 guys turned their, the Roman Empire upside down. And within their lifetime, from one side of the Roman Empire, which would have been Spain and Great Britain, to the other side of the Roman Empire, which is modern-day Iraq, to all the way to modern-day India, they took the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it cost them their lives. Again, Jesus says, if you're going to walk in obedience to Me, this is what's going to happen. That's normal. That's normal. And really, the choice is this, is what it comes down to is this. When we look at our own lives, do we look more like Jesus being that servant, that humility, humbling ourselves, lowering ourselves to the point of even washing each other's feet? Or do we look more like the world? That's a hard question to ask. That's something that I've been wrestling with over this entire week. But we have to ask ourselves that question. Are we becoming more like Jesus in our daily lives? So when we, when we are at the store, when we are at, in our neighborhood, that as we interact with our unbelieving co-workers and we're there at our jobs, are we working at our jobs the way if Christ was there. Because again, that's what Paul says, that we are to work in such a way. We are, our, our employer is not whatever business we're working at. Our employer is ultimately God. Are we working our job in such a way that, that we are pleasing and honoring to God? Are we being faithful in our jobs? Are we living in such a way that we are becoming more like Jesus? Or do we look more like the world? 